Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 134th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand, including uh, fun, creative ways such as our animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Michael Berenbaum. Before I even introduce our guest, I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, please go ahead, uh, get in the queue, use the comment section to type in your questions. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Our guest today, Michael Berenbaum, is an American scholar, professor, rabbi, writer, and filmmaker specializing in the study of the Holocaust. At a young age, he served as deputy director to President Carter's Commission on the Holocaust, which led to his being appointed project director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC. He is the director of the Sigi Zierig Institute, exploring uh, ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust and a professor of Jewish studies at the American Jewish University. Berenbaum is also the author of over 20 books, including this magnificent book, The World Must Know, which is the history of the Holocaust as told in the United States uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum. Scores of articles and hundreds of journalistic pieces. He's also been a producer and advisor to uh, more than a dozen films and documentaries about the Holocaust. We met at the Reagan Library, which will soon be hosting the Auschwitz exhibit, which he has curated. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm so curious about the path that took you on such uh, an extraordinary career. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you went from being born in the U.S. at the end of World War II to playing such a prominent role in helping Americans understand the Holocaust more deeply. I'll tell it to you briefly, but it's an, interest, it's an interesting journey. I grew up going to Jewish day schools in the United States, in New York, and they were Hebrew speaking Jewish day schools, which meant that my teachers were either survivors or refugees, but we didn't hear the term and we didn't know. We spoke a magnificent Shakespearean Hebrew. So the first time I came to Israel, I said, uh, asking for directions, I said, uh, if your heart inclineth in my direction, would you kindly indicate to me my humble servant, what is the proper path that one should take to reach his anointed destination? Obviously, the Israelis laughed at me, but they got there was a quaintness to it. We heard words. The words we heard were death, children, and camps. Um, we also were implicitly told that we were the generation of ice cream and whipped cream that had to make up for a generation that was lost. I also went to a very peculiar synagogue in New York, which was comprised and founded essentially by um, 
German and Belgium Jewish refugees who had escaped in 1938, 39, and 40. And because they were in the diamond business, they could escape with portable wealth. So they were trying to recreate in New York a world that was lost, but we never heard the words, we never heard the term. I became interested in a, a, a historical theological question. Why did the Jews not go out of business after defeat? And if you think back, we are, Jews are one of the very few ancient people that have had continuity after multiple defeats and have rebuilt, transformed, and changed in the aftermath of defeat. I'm working on this and a fellow says, you know, Michael, you're not asking an ancient question, you're asking the modern question. The Holocaust was the enormous defeat of the Jewish people. Millions were killed, an entire world of European Jewry, which had been the center of Jewish life was destroyed. And you're living through the rebuilding and the like. So I said, look, I'm not interested in modern history. I'm interested in ancient history. I've learned these crazy languages. Leave me be. He said, why don't you start reading? I started reading and I realized that I had been subliminally asking the modern question. Um, and uh, that led to, by fortune and good luck, and that's a different story, led to me to do two things in um, the early part of my career. One was to tell the story that could not be told to me, to the American people in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, in an idiom that they could understand. And then after we had done that, I left to um, work for Steven Spielberg's Survivor of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, which gave the survivors the opportunity to tell the story to the world and leave this incredible historical record um, and to tell their story to the American people, a story they could not tell to me as a child. And um, it became, um, this only makes sense retrospectively. I never thought of it going forward. But in retrospect, the unspoken, the unsaid, the unarticulated, the not yet capable of being articulated gave me uh, the direction for my professional career. Let's rewind even a little earlier than the museum. Uh, maybe you could share a bit about how President Carter appointed you at such a young age to serve on the commission. Well, on that, that's an interesting story itself. Um, think of it, we're about to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel. And Jimmy Carter uh, had Menachem Begin coming to the White House in May of 1978 to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the State of Israel. Carter had been in some political trouble with the Jews because he had mentioned Palestinian uh, rights and um, he didn't particularly like Menachem Begin, in part, uh, I think, because they were very much alike. Um, deeply um, uh, uh, religious men who saw themselves in historical terms, 
and um, had a certain sense of stubbornness uh, to them. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean that judgmentally, I mean that descriptively. Um, he asked a question, and this was the month after the docudrama The Holocaust had appeared on television. Docudrama appeared on television, and all of a sudden, people were interested in hearing the story of survivors. So uh, some staffers, and you've been a staffer in, in, in a political um, White House, some staffers approached him with the idea, maybe we should create a memorial to the Holocaust. He bought the idea, and uh, he said, I'd like to, uh, he charged a said he was going to create a, invite a thousand rabbis to the White House, God help him. Uh, and um, he said he was going to create a president's commission on the Holocaust to recommend an appropriate national memorial to the Holocaust. If it was the Holocaust, he um, first approached Arthur Goldberg. Arthur Goldberg said it had to be Elie Wiesel. Hmm. He appointed Elie Wiesel chairman. And Elie Wiesel wanted a man, by a, a, a major Jewish thinker by the name of Yitz Greenberg to be chairman, uh, to be director. And uh, I was a young scholar at Wesleyan University. I knew Yitz Greenberg well. I had written a book on Wiesel's thought. And they looked for a young man who could do the job, move down to Washington and spend full time on it. So I got the appointment through the recommendation of Elie Wiesel and a fellow by the name of Rabbi Professor Yitz Greenberg, Irving Greenberg, and I came down to Washington and we we made three of actually four basic recommendations. Number one, we said we would create something in Washington, not in New York. So we said essentially that we could take the memories of the Holocaust and bring them to the center of American national life. And they would have something to say to the American people, not just to the American Jewish community. Secondly, we wanted a living memorial. A living memorial means a museum to tell the story of the Holocaust, an academic center, an educational center, as well as a memorial itself. Jimmy Carter probably expected that we would create a statue of some sort, but we felt very strongly that a memorial works for the first generation that knows the story but afterwards it joins the number of statues in Washington with the exception of Lincoln and Washington and Vietnam. Um, and we'll have to see what Vietnam means another 20 years from now when the generation of Vietnam is gone. With the exception of that, name the other Washington, Washington monuments and who knows who Ulysses S. Grant was or something like that. Obviously, you do and I do because we're deeply ingrained in history, but most people just pass by. It's another statue, a man on horse or whatever have you. So we uh, recommended the creation of a living memorial in Washington, Museum, Education Center, Academic Center, and Days of Remembrance, which was an observant in churches and synagogues and civic settings of the Holocaust as a commemoration. And lo and behold, it took us 14 years and we got land donated by the American people, uh, but the funds for the creation of the museum were donated by private funds. We built a museum which was controversial until it opened. And then we had um, 
uh, a wonderful problem, which is we have an abundance of attendance. And we said, we want you all, but please don't all come at once. And um, I ironically um, um, left the museum, left the President's Commission uh, for a time, came back in after Ali Wiesel resigned as chairman uh, because they needed a, a scholar who could um, articulate and shape the memory of the Holocaust for the American people, preserving what was distinct and unique about it. And I had this wonderful opportunity in my uh, 30s to create on a scale never I had never imagined. And it was the rare privilege of my life. And since then, I understand you've uh, advised and been involved with um, quite a number of other Holocaust museums. Well, I had, I, I had a, a, an existential problem which is what do you do after you've done everything you wanted to do? So I'd been geared up for 14 years thinking in terms of the museum. We opened it, it was a smashing success. I'm in my um, early forties. I'm too poor and too young to retire. And the question it becomes, what do I next want to do? I then got this tremendous opportunity to develop the survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, take the testimony of 50,000 Holocaust survivors. We took 52,000 testimonies in uh, 57 countries and 32 languages. And we amassed the largest historical record of visual testimonies ever and the largest historical record of oral testimonies uh, ever. Think of it this way that there are 36 oral histories of um, people who were slaves in the United States. And we have um, by now about 80,000 testimonies of Holocaust survivors, all in video format. Now I want your audience to conceive of what that represents. First of all, it's a difference between an elite history and an every person's history. Normally, historians work with elites. They work with people who wrote letters, with people who compiled documents, who wrote diaries, who did historical events. But we have everybody from the most historically important people who survived to uh, Joe the Baker and, 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 and uh, Chaim the Taylor and um, Chaya the Seamstress and... and uh, uh, everybody in between. So we have an ordinary thing, uh, an ordinary historical record. Now, these are ordinary people who lived through some of the most extraordinary events imaginable. And what we have also, which is fascinating and will be worked on in future generations, is we have their testimony when they're in their 50s. And now we have their testimony when they were in their 70s. And now we have their testimony when they're in their 90s. And somebody's gonna think about um, how do you transmit memory when you're young and future oriented? And when you reach your 90s, you finally may come to the conclusion that you have more yesterdays 
than tomorrow's. And also, what do you want to leave as your legacy if this is the last that one hears of you? And the other part of this testimony, which is incredible, is you and I hopefully only go through life or death situation once or twice in our life, and maybe not at all. They lived in a life and death situation almost on a daily basis. I use the word hungry, it means I missed lunch. They ate in 41, they ate again in 45. Sometimes when they ate in 45, they literally could not digest it and it killed some. So I use cold, it means that today's a, a wonderful day, it's raining in California. It means I should put on a raincoat. If I didn't put on a raincoat, I'd get wet. They worked in um, uh, pajama-like uniforms in the dead of a Polish winter. Uh, when it's 10 degrees out or 15 degrees below zero. And I use the word cold, it means I need a sweater. They use a vocabulary. So they experienced something extraordinary. And then to complete my career after I did that, I asked, uh, well, I guess you know something. And by then I knew something about um, museums. I knew something about um, filmmaking and I want to remain a working scholar, a working stiff. So I said, I got to I should shape my life around the three node, noted skills I have. And that's what I've been doing for the last 22 years and have had fabulous opportunities. And um, people think that I know something <laughs> and I've now reached the stage where um, not only will people seek my advice, but they actually may listen. So perhaps the only book that I have read as many times as Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I find it's a book that I turn to when I'm facing, you know, not necessarily a life or death situation, but a challenging situation. And it's interesting because it's... Uh, in part, the story of this very uh, accomplished psychi psychiatrist um, who loses everything, loses his wife, loses his children, uh, loses his manuscripts, and almost loses his life in um, concentration camps. And yet he manages to still hold on to his humanity and um, his belief in humanity and and the, the line that uh, always stayed with me was that uh, man is the same person who built and ordered people into the gas chambers and also the the person who went into them with his head held high and the Shema Yisrael on his lips. So I, I guess my question is to you you have been immersed with so many of these heartbreaking uh, stories. How do you manage, uh, do you ever get overwhelmed? Do you ever find it depressing? And how do you, do, do you take something away that, um, that keeps you going? Well, let me answer the third question first. Um, 
I have found the material compelling. And however much I know, I realize how little I know. And consequently, as an academic and scholar, there is more to learn, and I learn it all the time, which is what keeps me going. Um, there's a danger with this material, and the danger is that um, you can really despair of humanity and experience the depth of inhumanity imaginable. I had a um, wonderful privilege uh, as a young scholar um, disturbing my wife enormously, which is I would be working in archives and reading all day. And I would come home and I had little kids and I would wake them up and play on the floor because I needed to touch vital life and not be surrounded by death. I also developed something which psychologists call entombment, which is you put your professional life in a tomb and you try to make sure you keep it there and it doesn't break out into the rest of your life. It's the type of thing that physicians have who deal with life and death all the time. And I gradually had to make sure that um, my limitation on feeling that happened when I put it in a tomb didn't affect the rest of my life where feeling was quite not only expected, but was absolutely necessary. Uh, you know, uh, and if you have young kids, you need to be about hope and future and, and vitality and all of that. If you're married, you can't say, I, you know, I don't, I cover my feelings like this and, and, you know, nothing can get to me. So you have to balance that. And the other thing that I have to balance um, creating in this field is to understand how the audience is gonna respond or audiences are going to respond um, in a way that I don't respond because I'm familiar with this material. So I have to put myself into the shoes of the audiences in order to be able to predict what they, what they, um, how they will respond to it and make sure that um, uh, you have to, in one sense, do you describe and depict and portray dehumanization without re-dehumanizing the audience and without re-dehumanizing the victim. Um, and let me give you a, a, a very peculiar example. Um, one can create an erotic movie without um, revealing an incredible amount. The first attraction, the first embrace, the first kiss, the first um, sense that the relationship is going somewhere, uh, depicting the uh, outpouring of love the morning after, and leave the rest to the imagination, which becomes ironically an erotic imagination. One can also um, engage in pornography, which leaves nothing to the imagination and which ultimately becomes boring. So we have to, when we create with this, we have to present violence and dehumanization and degradation and destruction 
in such a way that we don't redo it and make it just one, you know, overwhelming sense of it uh, and leave some to the imagination of the audience. And also we have to present the multiple narratives of the Holocaust because some like a Viktor Frankl may have maintained their humanity and others um, may have um, lost them. I mean, I, I just read a memoir in which a, a fellow said, my best friend was Ernest. I depended on him and I loved him. And I'm happy that, the th that my life was not that desperate that I stole his shoes. Now you have to maintain both senses. I loved him. He sustained my humanity. And if I had reached rock bottom, I might have even stolen his shoes. Now, once you understand that, you understand an awful, uh, an awful lot about what happened in this, in this circumstances. So you have to maintain a certain balance. And as I tell you, you also have to understand that there are three levels of audiences. And, you know, you know this phrase because I've used it in conversation with you. There are skimmers, swimmers, and deep divers. So when we create a museum, we try to create on three levels. So that if you want to get the point, it hits you. Boom, 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 boom. If you really want to understand it, we offer more and even more so that uh, somebody can spend an hour in a museum and somebody can spend six hours in a museum and learn something in a very deep and profound way. Um, it's different, for example, than when I teach a class, if I teach a graduate class, I'm only interested in the deep divers. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're a, a skimmer, don't take a graduate course. If you're a swimmer, you're not gonna do well in a graduate course, it's only the deep diver. And the deep diver in a graduate course is somebody who reads the footnotes. Yeah, no, I, I love that phrase because it helped me to articulate something that uh, I had been sort of instinctually doing with our work here at the Atlas Society, uh, but without the words to be able to explain it in that there are people at different stages, different temperaments, different levels of interest, people who've never heard of Ayn Rand, people that have never heard of, of the Holocaust, and then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, there are uh, people who are deeply interested, erudite, and um, accomplished objectivists. And, and so, then they, and then there are different ways that people learn. Right. Some people, some people learn by seeing. Some people learn by touching. Some people learn by hearing. Uh, right. And you know, you you have to and. and you know, we have in, in, in Washington, uh, people always remember um, a display of shoes. We have 5,000 pairs of shoes. And what people don't realize is that one of the powers of that exhibition is the fact the shoes are deteriorating, mm -hmm. may deteriorate over 100 years or 50 years or whatever have you. And they give off a smell. And um, you don't sanitize the smell, you smell it 
And if you think of it, one of your most acute senses is your sense of smell. It protects us as human beings from all sorts of things. The reason we don't eat spoiled food. Um, it's the reason that, that, that we engage in certain elementary elements of sanitation. So people learn by different ways um, and the like. One thing we can't do in a museum really is to taste, which obviously is, and if you think back to, um, we just finished the holidays. Now the holidays for many people are about smells and taste. You, you, come in, you come into a home and you smell the meal that's about to happen and then you eat that meal. And it's about smell and taste and visual and all of that. Uh, we also had a, um, a very interesting thing in testimony, Greek Jews did not have a common language with the rest of the victims. Most Central Europeans um, could understand either German or Yiddish or combination thereof. And some Central Europeans spoke six or seven languages as they got up in the morning. You know, uh, uh, we have a survivor who said, look, I, I lived in five countries and I never moved out of my home. <laughs> we don't, we in the United States imagine borders from, you know, the Atlantic to the Pacific, right? <laughs> in certain areas of, of, of uh, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, they changed hands four or five different times uh, without moving, without moving whatsoever. So the Greek Jews will always give you a visual description of what was happening because they didn't pick up cues by hearing. And consequently, their depictions are enormously visible, a visual. And when you listen to that, um, uh, you can almost draw what they're seeing in a way that 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 you that you don't with other victims because they had more multiple senses by which to describe what they were experiencing. All right, we are halfway through, and I definitely uh, want to talk about the Auschwitz exhibit and um, what people can expect and what the reception has been. But I'm going to take a break and get to some of the the questions that are coming in because there are quite a few, uh, including David Farouz on Facebook asking, is it becoming harder to impress onto new generations the significance of the Holocaust as more survivors grow old and disappear? So really just, you know, the how your mission that's has a, changed. That's a, that's a profound question. And the prof profundity of the question is that we are in a transition. We are going from living history to historical memory. And we're also going where the recipients of historical memory are more institutional than personal. In other words, museums, um, scholar, memorial, universities, scholarship, education, etc. But the authority of someone who is there is a very different authority. That's the bad news. The good news is that no generation has left behind a greater historical memory. 
and we will be able to create with this material for the foreseeable future. And I can tell you um, without bragging that I have won two Emmy Awards by learning how to get out of the way. And that is that we did two films of survivor testimony, which took no talent on my part, but only the recognition of talent on the part of the survivor and learning that you shouldn't interfere between them and the camera and merely suggest a couple of things all the way through because they, they were just tremendous storytellers and you had, to get out of, you had to get out of the way. And these are, one of them even won an Academy Award, but precisely not because of our talent, but because of our recognition of somebody else's talent uh, and, and the like. So they have the capacity tell the story. I'm worried about something very different. I'm less worried about Holocaust denial today in the hardcore sense of denial than I am about Holocaust trivialization, um, um, trivialization, vulgarization, and um, um, falsification. And also um, um, trivial, the, the, the sense of, of demeaning it. Um, uh, and, and we see that from the right, we see that from the left, we see that in all sorts of, all sorts of misuse of it. And one of the achievements of the last generation was the Holocaust became, in, in my words, uh, though I, I, I'm not, in my words, the negative absolute in a world of relativism. Interesting. We don't know what's good. We don't know what's bad. But the one thing everybody can agree upon is that, or most people can agree upon, Nazism was bad. Auschwitz was, and this is where we come to the exhibition, Auschwitz was the capital of evil. It was the embodiment of evil in our world, of 20th century humanity, of modern civilization, and the like, and therefore it becomes not only of implications to Jews and Germans, but of implications to all human beings. And notice the title of our exhibition, Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. Now that title is a scandal. Unfortunately, it's accurate. What should we want of Auschwitz? We should want Auschwitz to be long ago and far away. But we have echoes of Auschwitz in our world today. But the echoes of Auschwitz have to be serious echoes of Auschwitz, not the trivial echo echoes of Auschwitz. So for right. example, um, uh, let, let's take an example from the left and an example from the right. So we'll be, um, will be uh, equally critical on both sides. Uh, you take somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, who said, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't need to engage in whether her intentions were pure or not pure. I'm describing the thing. So Whoopi Goldberg uh, said that um, the Nazi uh, attack against the Jews was not racism. She saw racism in the American context as black and white. When anybody who knows something about the Holocaust understands that 1935, the German uh, Reichstag passed what was called the Nuremberg Laws, 
which define Jews uh, biologically based on the religion of their grandparents, not by the identity they affirm, not by the religion they practiced, not by the traditions they embraced, and led to the bizarre situation where, but by the religion of their grandparents, which led to the bizarre situation that um, Roman Catholic priests, Roman Catholic nuns, uh, including a, a, a Saint Edith Stein, uh, and past, Protestant pastors were all defined as Jews, even though the church tried to defend them as Christians. Why? Because the definition of Jew was blood by blood, and you had the sense of mongrels, of pure-blooded Jews, and then mixed breeds or mongrels called Michelin. Nazism was all about race. It was a hierarchical of race, with the Jews being the lowest form of race, meaning the race that had to be eliminated because they were regarded as cancerous. So again, somebody who says it's not about racism doesn't understand how integral race was. 28 institutions of higher learning had racial science trying to prove the super supremacy of the Aryan race. And it was a combination of, of, of uh, eugenics and euthanasia that were personified. Let's take the, the, the opposite. However you feel about mass, mass were not yellow stars. Yellow stars defined, yellow stars existed. And by the way, in Poland, they were white armbands, so we shouldn't only say yellow stars. But yellow stars existed because you can't tell Jewish identity from the outside. It's not either the color of your skin or the nature of your eyes uh, and, and, and the like. So consequently, they mark Jews and they ultimately mark them for extermination. First, ex first exclusion, then, um, then um, uh, ultimately extermination, which we would call annihilation. So trivializing it makes it, uh, you know, Anybody who says that is talking about their own foolishness, whether you like mass or not. Nobody was being identified to be murdered because they were or were not wearing a mask. Uh, right. This was a way of targeting people for ultimately for annihilation. So I can use a thousand examples of trivialization and, and, and vulgarization. And I'm much more worried about that because what it does is to reduce the moral capacity of the Holocaust to shock and to engender a certain measure of responsibility. And therefore it ends up in trivialization and, 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 and vulgarization. So that's, that's my concern every day. I have a, an example of, I probably have a few, not as many as, as you can muster, but <clears throat> Uh, I remember working with a former chief of staff to President Obama, who had heard of me but hadn't uh, yet met me. And when he met me, he said, oh, here's the leader of the Hitler Youth Brigade, knowing that I was active in Republican politics. And uh, to his credit, when I reminded him that I was Jewish, he was very embarrassed and apologized profusely, but what bothered me was not so much this awkward application of this label to someone who's 
Jewish, but precisely this trivialization, this um, cavalier use of, of Hitler analogies uh, to, to a stranger that you don't know anything about. That's so, right. And again, and it's when that happens, it's things. And it also reflects on the person who doesn't under, quite understand uh, what the impact is. Look, I can disagree with you, but to call you, uh, and, and why do you call somebody a Nazi? It's a way of screaming. It's just, it, it, it's become a way of screaming uh, in the same way that, that, that um, um, let, let's take a, a, an interesting example. It's clear that the, um, the Russians are committing war crimes, attacks against civilians. It's not quite as clear that they're committing genocide. I can, I can, I can give you multiple evidence. I know the legal definition terminology, mm -hmm. but war, crime, war crimes are clear to destroy the infrastructure, uh, uh, stuff like the electrical supply and the water supply, especially during the winter is essentially uh, a war crime. Uh, of a certain uh, magnitude to attack civilians on that basis, etc. That's not quite genocide. Different than, for example, what's happening in China. But again, you don't want to lose the moral import of that. Hitler was Hitler. Uh, however much you dislike what Putin is doing, Putin is not Hitler. Putin is Putin. Now, you, you and I, when we went to school, learned to compare and contrast. And comparing to contrast is not to equate. Interesting. And All right. Well, the, the question of war crimes uh, versus genocide actually ties into another question we have here from Facebook. Candace Morena asking, in America, learning about the Holocaust has become an integral part of everyone's upbringing, it seems. Well, I'm not sure, but... Would, the, would that it were the case. Yes, I wish that were the case. Uh, but she wants to know, why do you think that the Ukrainian Holomador or other genocides, such as in Armenia and Rwanda, are not as widely known? I think it has to do with a, with a couple of things. Uh, let me just explain to the audience. Um, what the Holodomor was. The Holodomor was the deliberate starvation of Ukraine, of uh, people in the Ukraine by Stalin and his henchmen uh, in order to essentially um, change the way in which food was grown in the Ukraine. The secret of the Ukraine is the Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. It's the reason precisely that in the 1950, in 1930s, Stalin wanted to control, and it's the reason why Hitler wanted to control the Ukraine in the 1940s. And we've seen the implications in the current war uh, of what happens when you attack the Ukraine and you don't give it the capacity to export grain. That would have led, if we did not have an agreement, would have led to massive starvation in Africa because the Ukraine soil is the equivalent of the soil of uh, our Midwest of Iowa and the like. And, and you know, we can, uh, this type of soil can feed the world if what? If the products of that soil, the, the food grown on that soil can, can get out. Um, 
there are a couple of reasons why it's not quite as well known. The first is that um, the Holocaust occurred over 12 years and 23 different countries. It, imp it impacted two of the great monotheistic religions in the world, in a minor way, the Islamic world, but Christianity and Judaism. It occurred in the most scientifically advanced and um, with the greatest musical, philosophical, and, um, and intellectual tradition as a 20th century phenomenon. It occurred in the open, it occurred when film existed, and it occurred with two people who were deeply committed to documentation and memory. Ben Ferenz, who was the um, lead attorney at the murder, the largest mass murder trial in the world at Nuremberg, the Einsatzgruppen uh, trial, essentially closed um, the uh, prosecution in two days. He asked one question, is this your signature? And um, as he compiled it, he had among the people on trial, he essentially had uh, the equivalent of about one, signatures for about the murder of 1.8 million um, uh, Jews, uh, some Soviet commissars and some uh, Roman Sinti known as, as gypsies. Two days. One question, they were convicted by what? Their own documentation because they what? They were in a very deep sense proud of what they were doing. The best example of that is Heinrich Himmler in October, 1943, gave a speech to the SS in which he, in which he said, this is a chapter of German history never to be written, never to be told. Now, Jennifer, you can ask me the question, if it's never to be written, never to be told, why is it that I know about it? Because Himmler in the back of the room was so proud of what they had achieved that he had it recorded. But he didn't have it recorded the way you and I record things now on a little phone that we can put what in our pocket. He had it on a machine that was this large and that created essentially the equivalent of a record because he wanted to make sure that it was documented. So we have his notes, we have his recording, and we have the response because they wanted to brag about it. Jews are fascinated by history. And the single example of that also is that there was um, a group in Warsaw called um, the Onik Shabbos, the uh, Joy of Sabbath, a group that documented everything that compiled the historical record. And when the ghetto was being destroyed, they buried it in milk cans and in um, metal boxes, understanding that they would not live, but the Jewish history would continue to exist. And they wanted their story to be told not from the perspective of the killers, but from the perspective of the victims. And therefore the commitment to memory and documentation is unequaled. Uh, you, you have records in 30 different countries of what happened. You have massive amount of documentation 
And there was a commitment from the various, very early on period of time to tell the story. And that's why it has a larger memory. The Armenian community has slightly caught up with that. Um, mass communication was not as strong in the 19 uh, teens as it, it was in the 1930s and 40s. The same thing in the Holodomor. And the Holodomor had um, a, a longer period of suppression. Plus, even the Americans made a deliberate effort to record it. Um, the, the, the best example is that Eisenhower invited the moguls of Hollywood and the, um, uh, all the newspaper uh, publishers to in, invite it as a polite word. He insisted that they get their rear ends over to the camps and see. Joseph Pulitzer said, um, when I was reading this, I thought it was an overstatement. And now I recognize that it was an understatement. You had the great, you had the greatest of the filmmakers, George Stevens, Frank Capra of that generation, who joined the army in the Army Signal Corps. And the Army Signal Corps and the Army Signal Corps uh, recorded everything. And by the way, um, since we were talking about the President Reagan Library. President Reagan, um, when he was a young actor, this is in the 1940s, um, was present when they developed this film. The Army wow. Signal Corps film. And he made a psychological mistake, which he later corrected, because he said, I was there. Mm -hmm. But that's the power of the film of what he saw. And he truly believed in one sense he was there because he was there when we were seeing it for the first, when Americans were seeing it for the first time and it was broadcast in our theaters. Now, what is the difference between now and then, which is incredible is now everybody's broadcasting. In other words, I now have the power to communicate to the entire world what I'm seeing and put it out there. I don't need a film crew. I don't need a camera crew. I don't need everything. That's why in one sense, we're sometimes oversaturated with information that is taking place and we lose the power of story, which is context and prelude and, and whatever have you. Uh, I'll give you a, a funny example of, uh, uh, which is uh, to say funny is, uh, when I was a, kid, I was 16 years old. I was um, involved as a victim in a holdup. And that is, I was in a store where people came in with guns and held us up. And um, it made no sense to me because I'm used to a plot from a holdup. When I see a holdup on television, I'm used to the change in the drama of the music. I'm used to the pre-story, I'm used to the post-story. And it took me, I don't know whether it was one minute or 10 seconds to realize this is real, but it had no context, no plot, no narrative, no story. And consequently, I was unprepared to see 
what I experienced as, as being the victim of a holdup. And it's only after police interrogation, and I was in, in being interrogated not, not as, as, as a perpetrator, but as a victim, only after police interpretation did I begin to understand that I was giving them a narrative, which is the way in which we experience it, but thoroughly unreal when it could have cost me my life. Wow, yeah, that, that is an interesting analogy. Now we have eight minutes left, and so I'm going to just give a blanket apology to all of the people who asked uh, really great questions this time um, that we're just not going to have enough time to get to because there are two things. One, I I definitely want to hear about um, the exhibit and, and maybe we'll close with that. But first, we haven't talked that much about your film career and your involvement with uh, all of these projects over the years. So um, would love to hear a little bit about maybe some of your favorite projects, some of the most memorable projects, future projects, and even perhaps, um, you know, other fictional, because I know you've done do documentaries and um, uh, movies that in many cases were, were based on real people, but um, some, some fictional uh, treatments in literature, let's say, of, of the Holocaust that- So let, let, let's do that briefly. I, I am Leon Uris in particular. I, I'm much more directly involved in um, documentaries, meaning that I'm, I'm usually the producer and the academic advisor for documentaries. And I have all the raw material and I've probably created, if you think of museums, which sometimes have 40 and 50 films, I've probably created hundreds of short films on the Holocaust and probably about 20 or 25 uh, longer documentaries in which I've been heavily involved. I'm normally consulted on fictional uh, elements to advise um, them on what to do and more importantly, to advise them what not to do. Uh, tell you a funny story. My um, wife came to our marriage with a handyman. And one day the handyman said to uh, my wife, do me a favor and call me before your husband starts to fix something. It'll be cheaper and faster. I had a- um, A Jewish fix it. I, I, had, I had a peculiar break in that way. And that is that um, people came to me, I won't mention the film, where they had made all sorts of major mistakes in the film chronologically and visually. And they had to spend the fortune. They, they for example, had Jews in Poland with yellow stars when Jews had white armbands. They had uh, Jews in occupied Poland, not, you know, they had Jews in pre-invasion Poland with yellow stars, which didn't happen. It only happened after it. And they had to um, re redo a whole range of things. And I developed the reputation where somebody wants to do something serious, uh, consult him before rather than after. And right now we're working on a very interesting uh, film. Um, and actually the, the film is about um, women who in starvation resisted by creating, um, preserving their recipes. 
And this is an international phenomenon. We'd already done a documentary on it. Um, and that is that ironically, women in starvation do something very intriguing to preserve their dignity, which is they preserve their historical record. What is the historical record of um, many women? It's cooking. And they remember when they had food, when they had family, when they had kitchens and the like. And um, we are going to now be telling the story of one such woman who um, created a record. And when she died, she insisted that it be given to her daughter who was not there. And it only was given to her about 25 years later. Wow. With somebody saying, I have a present for you from your mother. What is the present? The present are the recipes of Central European uh, women with all that that represents. It's another way of saying we preserve our culture. So I'm, I'm uh, deeply involved with that. I have a, a movie that is gonna be shown this Saturday night called Reckoning, which is uh, in Miami at the Jewish Film Festival, which is the story of the negotiations between the Jews and Germans in 1950-51 for the question of restitution and the battle that happened over the question of restitution with Jews desperately needing uh, funding for the absorption of immigrants by the state of Israel and also for survivors to get on with their lives and Germany needing, as it were, to restore itself to the family of humanity after the atrocities, but they're being unable to talk to each other because of all that was involved. And this was the first formal meetings between uh, Jews and German. It took the great leadership of Konrad Adenauer uh, and also of, of a combination of David Ben-Gurion and Nachum Goldman and no less a figure than, than Menachem Begin called an absolution. And it turned out that this worked out as reparations, uh, worked out to um, strengthen survivors, strengthen Israel, and give Germany a way of repentance and um, restoring and creating a future antithetical to the future that it had under the Third Reich. So it's a, I, I keep working on these and it's, it's very interesting and I have various roles in that. And lots of people consult really? me. Wow. Lots of people consult me to make sure they don't make mistakes. And the last point I wanna make is my first advice to every filmmaker is don't add drama, merely let the drama speak forth. You screw it up when you add drama when you drama, when you let the drama come forth, then you can do it right. Well, that is a wonderful bit of advice to end on. Um, I want to let everybody know that the Auschwitz uh, exhibit at the Reagan Library is going to be opening on March 24th. And this is uh, an exhibit that has attracted thousands and thousands of, of visitors. And I, I think it's been Kansas City and uh, was it in Spain or? New, New York, in Madrid and in Malmo. 
and now it's coming to California. It has 700 artifacts and it is um, at the risk of, of, let me give my colleagues complete credit for doing it, but they, are, they deserve the credit because essentially we have told the story of Auschwitz in an enormously powerful and complete way. And it's an exhibit that um, won the um, International Award for Europe and that drew 600,000 people in Madrid, sold out in Kansas City for eight months and um, uh, is now in Malmo, which is interestingly enough, the most anti-Semitic city in the European continent. Um, and the mayor brought it there in order to address the anti-Semitism in his city, in his country, and it's playing a dramatic and important role. It's wow. an exhibit you don't want to miss if you're in the California area. Beautiful. Well, fantastic. We will stay tuned. Michael, is there, I don't notice a big social media presence. I wouldn't necessarily expect one, but what's the best way to keep tabs on you? Maybe set in a Google alert? <laughs> Uh, Google Alert, uh, I'm redoing my website. It'll be up in about another month with all of the different activities that I do. Okay, wonderful. And, uh, and it's fun. Well, thank you so much, uh, not just for this interview, but for your mission and the incredible contribution that, uh, that you've made to America and to the world. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who joined if you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And make sure to join us next week uh, when rapper and comic book empresario Eric July will join us on the next episode of the Atlas Society Asks. We'll see you then.